Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. There were many strange children in Byzantium, and most of them went on to become saints. But one odd little boy uh, who would not go on to become a saint, a little Constantine, whom you would have met in the 1020s, had memorized the entire Iliad by, I don't know, the age of 10, (laughs) and claims in one of his later texts that he had never set foot outside the walls of Constantinople until he was about 16 or so. Uh, This person obviously went on to become Michael Psellos, a prolific author and polymath of the 11th century, and a courtier of uh, ambiguous reputation. Obviously, there are not many boys of that age who have memorized the entire Iliad, uh, or in that period of history who had not set foot outside of a major city, like even to go out into the fields outside the walls uh, until, you know, they were teenagers. But it's not clear whether we should take those statements entirely at face value, uh, but they point toward uh, the problems of understanding Byzantine childhood. So on the one hand, we have the problem that our sources tend to record the most unusual and extraordinary versions of anything. This is, after all, why you wrote things down. You, you didn't write things in order to convey the, the banal, the everyday, the well-known, the conventional. Normally, you wrote in order to talk about unusual events, uh, whether you were writing hagiography, so this is a person of unusual virtue, or you're writing about history, in which case you're talking about you know, wars and disruptions and earthquakes and just things out of the ordinary that affected people's lives. Now, this is kind of a general problem in the ancient and medieval source record that it tends to focus on unusual things. And nevertheless, that is our basis for reconstructing the norms. And we're often kind of working at cross purposes with our sources as modern historians. So this obviously affects children. If you're going to mention a child in an ancient or medieval source, you better have some good reason for it. After all, that paper is expensive. And so that child had to be had to be pretty extraordinary to merit uh, attention. So the other problem is that our representations of children are always refracted uh, through the medium in which they appear. That is, the, like the genre, uh, the kind of text, the, the agenda of that text, the politics and purposes um, of that text. So many of the children that we know about, as I said, went on to become saints. And the point of the text is to show that this child was saintly and very virtuous from a very early age. Obviously, a great deal of those narratives are sort of pious fictions that are written by a follower of the saint uh, after his death, so possibly a century after the saint's childhood, and uh, and often is reverse engineered to make the child um, into the sort of forerunner of the well-known saint that uh, he later became. Likewise, in whatever childhood accounts we have of rulers and emperors and generals and so forth. They're not many, but they also tend to point toward um, the later virtues or vices that uh, the text wants to highlight. As our guest today will explain, childhood is thereby kind of refracted through different genres of legal categories and medical and hagiographical and so on. And so we get all of these different pictures that are all trying to achieve something very different um, with a result that is often um, overall uh, incoherent or contradictory. These problems can appear 
within any single domain as well. I'll give you as an example that in American law, uh, teenagers can, on the one hand, be treated as not yet mature enough to make decisions about you know, drinking and driving and voting, but on the other hand, can often be tried as adults <laughs> and, and, you know, imprisoned, you know, for, for crimes uh, as if they were adults. By the way, the case of Pselos doesn't correspond to any sort of genre as such. That's just Pselos doing his autobiographical thing, which is an aspect of many, many of his texts. Regardless of who they're about or what he's talking about, they often uh, find ways of working their way back to Pselos and just how unusual and exceptional he was in all kinds of ways. My guest today is Oana Maria Koshokaru, um, who is at the Tampere University in Finland. And she has written a wonderful book on Byzantine childhood, representations, and experiences of children in Middle Byzantine society. The book admirably lays out the problems with all of our different kinds of sources for Byzantine childhood and talks about the different representations and images that those sources presuppose, right? Like, so what does a medical text think is the norm for childhood? What does a legal text think you know, in terms of you know, responsibility and reason? Uh, what does a hagiographical text think in terms of uh, children's ability to be virtuous and, and so forth? And it synthesizes uh, the results um, of those inquiries into a more or less rounded picture of the different kinds of experiences that Byzantine children had. It's very accessible and clearly written and it's also interesting that at the end, um, Oana um, engages in some sort of speculative, imaginative reconstructions of the uh, overall you know, life trajectory or childhood trajectory of a couple of Byzantine children that she sort of their sort of synthetic, I don't want to use the word fictional. We talk about this at the end of the uh, episode. Not entirely fictional, but they're not exactly sort of documented. <laughs> they're not real people. They're, they're um, ideal types of, 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 of the kinds of experiences that a child would have. So let's get to it. Uh, thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, here's my conversation with Oana. Hello, Oana. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I was very happy to have you on, and also I enjoyed reading your book on Byzantine childhood. So this is obviously a very difficult topic because... For one thing, Byzantine authors didn't write on childhood directly. There are very, very few texts that are primarily about that topic. And so you have had to scour such a wide range of sources and pick out incidental things and then try to understand those incidental things within the genres of the texts in which they appear because you always have to correct for what's going on and all of that. So it's a very difficult process to come up with a sort of picture of Byzantine childhood. And, and you do it very well in the book, I should say. So, um, and it's very accessible too. So I sort of totally recommend it to anybody who wants to uh, dive into the topic who might not necessarily know much in advance. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to set up a kind of composite picture of Byzantine childhood, kind of the way you do in the book. Let's start first with some basic questions about demography. This was a young society, right? Like, so what percentage of the population were children? Well, definitely it was a young society, but um, I should point out from the start that it's very difficult to make statistics uh, because we don't have precise demographical data. 
about uh, the population of the Byzantine Empire in any given uh, historical period. Um, we, we know very little about the Middle Byzantine period, which is uh, uh, the time uh, period I'm focusing on in my book. We know that the average lifespan of Byzantine was relatively brief. For instance, archaeological evidence point out that in Byzantine Crete, men would die in the 30s. The average age uh, at death for women was in mid 30s and for men in mid 40s. Mm. Obviously, not all people died at this age. Others lived uh, quite a long life. But uh, it is really difficult to, you know, gather um, data and because of that, because we don't have enough uh, data, historians uh, interested in uh, demography in uh, ancient societies usually make use of life tables, which which basically are mathematical approximations, yeah. uh, just to, to get a rough idea of the demographical patterns. And this is what I have tried to do in my book, to use this kind of uh, life table, which would correspond to a Mediterranean uh, population, even though it's for 19th century, but it's a population with high uh, infant and childhood mortality. However, there are some percentages advanced by scholars, and uh, they are basically for 14th century Byzantine Macedonia. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is this uh, well-known study of uh, Angeliki Lai on a Pisan society mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the, published in the 70s. And it suggests that 50% of males were under 20 and 46% uh, percent of females were uh, under 15. I tried to use the life table in my book to get a rough <laughs> idea of the percentage uh, of uh, how of, of the children in the uh, Middle Byzantine uh, period, and probably up to age fifteen, one third of the population was wow. made up of children. So, yes, uh, it was uh, a pretty yeah uh, young society with many children in the streets uh, doing their work or going to school or playing. Especially you know, if we compare to uh, uh, today's society, which is rather old. Yes, these are astonishing numbers sometimes for us to think about. Um, I you know, sometimes come across references to a country today that has come out of a, like a long civil war or some, you know, just a really bad phase in its history. And you'll say, see something like, well, half the population is under 18. And that's just, it, it blows my mind. I mean, it's difficult yeah. to even imagine that. <laughs> Like, how does historical memory work in this society? And I've had to cope with this as a historian, too, because many of the people who wrote our sources tended to live, you know, longer. And sometimes even into their like 70s, 80s and 90s and so on. And I'll find myself thinking like in the 390s, OK, an early period, um, you have people like Labanius and Gregory of Nazianzus and Themistius and all of these writers, they all passed away in that decade at a pretty advanced age. And you think, ah, a generation had passed. But no, no, those people 
were holdovers from an earlier period of history that almost nobody else remembered. Anyway, exactly. yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly, and also in Byzantium, the intellectual, <laughs> intellectuals or or yeah, writers used to or or saints used to live longer than you know average population. Yeah. So elite lived a longer life, uh, also due to. Um, general living conditions. There was a big gap between those two groups. And I sometimes think of it in terms of the university. So mm -hmm. in the university, we have our undergraduate students, they come in and they stay for four years and then they're gone. And I've been here 20 years. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I've cycled through so many generations of students and they come in and their historical knowledge of the university is so shallow. Like we can reinvent the university over and over and over again and they hardly even notice that these deep changes are taking place <laughs> anyway okay uh, yeah. so we're digressing I, I, let's get back a little bit to demography just to flesh out you know the picture of the society but you're exactly right that you would have seen all of these children running around in the streets and everywhere like a good part of the society would have been children so how many infants did uh, each family have to produce and just to keep the population relatively stable well, according to, to, to the textual sources, um, a family would have on average two to three children that uh, survived the years of childhood. And that would mean that a woman on average should, should give birth to uh, five, six children. So uh, to, to maintain a, a stable population. Yeah. So because half of children died before uh, reaching the age of five, women were encouraged to, to, uh, to give mm -hmm. birth to as many children as possible because only a few would, would survive the adulthood. And uh, of course, parents were, uh, were all aware that childhood was very dangerous. That could strike at any time. Uh, so yeah, it's a very grim uh, picture. Yeah. We talked about issues of mortality in a separate episode with Christian Lias, and which I'm hoping to post right before this one so that they form a nice kind of pair. So let's assume that our infants um, make it past the first year, you know. But before we get to that, you talk in your book about why uh, baptism was practiced so soon after birth. And I mean, one could argue that informed consent would make for a you know better Christian after all. And, and uh, you know, why baptize infants? Even Jesus wasn't baptized as an infant. Uh, so what were the practical and theological uh, reasons in favor of infant baptism? Yes, well, this has to do also with, <laughs> with the fact that childhood was a, a risky period and many children died very, very young. The things, of course, have changed since early Christianity, when adult uh, baptism was the standard. But by the uh, 6th century, uh, infant baptism was already spread out uh, in, the, in the Byzantine Empire. And yes, this, was, the, this practice was associated with the high risk of infant death. No newborn uh, should, should have been in danger to 
uh, you know, to die and then to be deprived of the final salvation. So this was a matter of spiritual salvation. Mm. Of course, there were times where there was a concern among, among priests uh, who questioned whether performing baptism at an early age is theologically sound on the grounds that Jesus was not uh, baptized as infant. And earlier it required the catechetical instruction and then the declaration of uh, or consent from those who were baptized that they renounced devil and they, they confessed their faith, which was obviously not the case for a child. But for theologians, it was very clear that baptism had to be performed at an early age because of the high risk of death. And the most appropriate time, because they also discussed when would be the perfect time to perform baptism, was on the 40th day after birth, after uh, the mothers would complete their uh, period of purification because they were considered unclean after giving birth. If the child was not in danger, then the baptism was, uh, was suggested to be performed on the 40th day. Mm. If the child was sick, but his life or her life was not in mortal danger, then the canonists ad advised that the child should be baptized on the eighth day or earlier. So they followed somehow um, in terms of why the eighth day. They followed this uh, Jewish uh, tradition mm. because it evokes uh, Jesus' circumcision and the practice of uh, receiving the name. This is also a continuation of older tradition in uh, the Roman culture with purification or lustratio and mm. name taking place mm. on the eighth day. So uh, here is a, a nice blend between pagan uh, Greek or Roman culture and Jewish traditions, which, uh, which have been uh, borrowed by, uh, by the Byzantines and adjusted to everyday realities. Which is what Byzantium is, after all. Yes. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about childhood as a concept here, uh, because we don't want to take it for granted. Um, all of us, you know, if you ask someone to picture in their mind a child, they can do so, that's fine. Uh, but childhood is also a co cultural construct, in addition to being a biological phase. Every society has different ideas about children and also about what children are. Could you tell us some sort of distinctive conceptions of Byzantine childhood? In your book, you very usefully distinguish between sort of legal, you know, medical, biological, and theological views. So can you tell us some of their characteristic ideas about children? Yes. Well, childhood and also the next stages, uh, adolescence and adulthood, were quite fluid in their, right. in their minds. Uh, and uh, the Byzantines judged this issue according to different circumstances, from different perspectives. And as you said, uh, medical writers were concerned with physical and mental development. Uh, so they distinguished uh, between uh, the stages of human life, taking into consideration different transitional markers. Dentition could be one, winning uh, and puberty. So uh, from this point of view, puberty would be the end point of childhood. On the other hand, legislation was concerned with what an individual was uh, permitted or forbidden to do. And it was a matter of rights and obligations. And 
for them, it mattered uh, the capacity to reason and to discern what, what is right and what is wrong. It's so striking for them, a child was deemed accountable for committing crimes from the age of seven. Mm. Uh, so the age of seven marked the threshold of rationality and responsibility. Wow. That's why, because it was the age of reason, that's why uh, it was uh, uh, believed appropriate time when the child should start the education. Theologians thought that uh, a 10-year child could make the decision to enter a monastic community. So a, uh, the age of 10 was apparently the age of religious maturity. While at the same time, age of 12 seemed to indicate moral responsibility in terms of confessing uh, the sins before God. Yeah, it's very tricky. Biologically uh, speaking, Byzantines uh, thought childhood lasted until puberty. Also because this was the age when they were considered, uh, girls at 12, they were considered to be uh, capable of sexual reproduction, of having babies. Uh, that's why the law permitted uh, them to, to get married and form a family. But legally, they were minors. I mean, legal maturity yeah. uh, was acquired at the age of 25. So we, we have different, different thresholds in looking in, from different perspectives. Those ages are all very, they're remarkably young to us. Yeah, any, yes, all by all means, things. yes. <laughs> I mean, I would put the age of reason at around 22. Right, me too. <laughs> Just judging from my own personal experience. Um, yeah. And, but they also, the lifespans were generally shorter, especially for forming a family. You know, things had to move along. You know, we'll, I'm going to talk about this a bit later, but parents and grandparents weren't around for as long. And so family responsibilities devolved upon children earlier often. And so, yeah, it was a very accelerated progression uh, into adulthood. If, if I can add, yeah, the law permitted from 12 and 14, but in practice, they didn't marry so young. I mean, right. there are cases, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I would say that 15 for girls would be the average age of, of marriage. For boys, it was later in their teens. So boys had a longer transition somehow from childhood to adulthood compared to girls, which were thrown out <laughs> yeah. in the means of life. But yeah, so even even somehow for girls, I would I would say that uh, probably having the first child would be you know, the marker from now on, I am an adult. I have adult responsibilities. I have to raise this child. I have to take care of the house and the family and so on. So uh, at a practical level, I, I would say that 15, 18 for boys, 15 for girls. Would be, um... I mean, so we tend to think about childhood and marriage as being as belonging to separate spheres of life but we've already gotten to a point here where they're overlapping uh, considerably how did society theorize essentially children or, or or partners who were essentially minors being married right for for boys and for girls and the law required uh, the consent of, of of future spouses but in practice 
this was just uh, a formality. Uh, parents took care of all this. They considered who might be the right uh, bride or the right uh, bridegroom for their children. They arranged, however, this marriage uh, uh, contracts because they were aware that at some point in time, the fathers who took care of this matter in general mm. They were likely to die before before the marriage of their offspring, so they wanted to assure their future. They wanted to put their children's future in order. Also, marrying at a at an early age uh, would make a lot of sense from their uh, perspective. On the one hand, there is this cultural factor. With puberty came uh, the temptation to have premarital sex mm. and the danger associated with with this activity was uh, great especially for girls so one factor had to do also with controlling the sexuality of teenagers uh, which was supposed to manifest only within marriage and families were concerned with preserving the virginity of young girls and uh, once they they enter puberty then it was better mm-hmm. to uh, to to get married soon. There is also this uh, this issue that uh, is prevalent in traditional cultures when uh, where honor uh, for women uh, was of paramount importance uh, to the virginity before marriage and thereafter the fidelity to their uh, husband. Any blemish upon these two conditions uh, would then entail a heavily repercussion for not just the girl but the woman in question for the uh, whole family yeah so uh, we we see two important factors at stake preserving the virginity and then controlling the sexual temptation of children of uh, teenagers and then the demographic reality still a society like in antiquity where the the honor of women is such that you know you have all of these stories about women sort of preferring to die rather than be dishonored by a barbarian or you know whatever and uh, these are deeply embedded in both <laughs> roman and greek and and christian traditions um <clears throat> there's stories of all of these you know like nuns who are about to be violated and choose to die instead yeah. so and 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 marriage is a way of of sort of safeguarding the structure of honor um, and and also perpetuating the family fortunes. Let's go back to children, independently of whether they're married yet. In what kind of physical environment did most of them live? Um, sort of assuming they made it past their first few years. And like, what did they do most of the time? And I'm asking here not so much about uh, princelings and aristocrats and saints, whom are the ones we know most about, but all of the rest. And you've done a lot of work in trying to. Um, access their life experiences. Yeah. So, wh- what was that like? Much of children's uh, universe was limited to the house, the neighborhood, to the fields and pastures uh, where they were sent to to herd domesticated animals. But uh, that, of course, depended as physical environment depended in what kind of region uh, they lived, whether they lived in countryside, in villages, or in small towns. Uh, or whether they lived in big cities, the majority of the population was essentially rural. So most uh, peasants lived in, in small houses with a single space, uh, with, with a room or, or several rooms uh, arranged in a courtyard. So 
children would spend their times there. There are larger villages on coastal areas, on river valleys with fertile soil that was important for agriculture. So many children live in that area. In the cities, low, low middle class families live uh, as well in houses with small rooms. Basically, that was the space where the family would would spend much of the time. So children, little children would spend their time with mothers because they they had to be supervised. Um, And in places where the mother would do what uh, she had to, uh, handiwork, uh, the kitchen, where she prepared the meals, uh, the bedroom. Girls were supposed to spend most of the time inside the houses, um, whereas boys had much more freedom in their activities, in their actions, uh, depending, uh, obviously, on their age. But what did they do most of the time? Well, <laughs> they played. <laughs> Young children, we assume they played. Uh, this was uh, the dominant activity for uh, young children. and. From the, step, the age of six, seven, they started to learn to read and write. So they started uh, basic education. Th- this was available for, for both uh, girls and boys and could be acquired at home. That was the case of girls because yeah, they were educated under the guidance of parents uh, if they were literate or uh, with a private tutor if the financial situation of the family permitted to hire a tutor. Boys would be educated, would go to uh, ecclesiastical schools. So this is the main difference between girls and boys mm-hmm. in terms of basic education and the places where they go for that. I would say that few girls were <laughs> really educated in terms of mastering reading and writing. Sure. So what do we know about child labor? Well, of course, children were put to work, but this is not necessarily something negative. So it's not that they were exploited necessarily or abused. But many children, uh, especially low-class children, peasant, were, were sent to work from quite an early age. I would say agricultural work was uh, something that they... They were involved in uh, herding uh, animals, domesticated animals, or helping their fathers with sowing, weeding also. For girls, they were encouraged to learn handiwork, embroidery, spinning, clothing makers. They were uh, cloth makers. In addition to textile production, girls uh, had to learn how to manage uh, the household. So they were prepared for the future roles as wives. So you mentioned uh, playing earlier. Tell us about some a toy or a game that you came across in your research, <laughs> just something that you found interesting. I think Byzantine children played quite with similar toys as I played in Romania <laughs> <laughs> some 35 years ago. I mean, there isn't a really huge difference. In, uh, for instance, uh, infants had rattles. They were not so nicely fashioned as uh, nowadays, <laughs> maybe. But uh, anyways, 
so Rathdown's sporting friends made from baked clay. They were painted in, in nice colors, to be visually appealing to, to children. Pool toys, whistles for boys. And I remember my childhood friends uh, used, uh, used whistles a lot. And older children uh, enjoyed outdoor activities, swinging, climbing the trees, or rolling ho- hoops. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Also, uh, something that I remember I used to do to imitate, to you know, this role uh, playing. Role-playing um, games, yes, yes. Yes. So uh, they, they like to imitate adults to enact different um, events, such as weddings, or to pretend to be um, soldiers or uh, monks, priests, uh, generals. Girls would, would play with dolls. Regarding dolls, I just came across a very interesting text by Celos. In, uh, in which he, well, it's a text on the origin and cause itself of uh, human intelligence, something like that, and what makes somebody uh, to, to be intelligent, to be in sound mind, and, uh, <laughs> or to be uh, retarded. Or, yes, I and, think he says, why are some people smart and some dumb? I think it's just yes, called Yes, that. something like that, yeah, something like that. And, and then he gives the example of a boy who uh, used to reject everything that was boyish, these kind of games. Uh, um, he didn't want to, to, to play balls or um, uh, dice, but he enjoyed uh, much playing with dolls. So he kind of enacted what a couple would do, and the bride would become pregnant, and she would give birth uh, with the uh, help of a midwife uh, who would receive a salary and so on. So it, it was really interesting how probably girls would, you know, internalize somehow the expectations that, well, right. at some point I would become a mother or right. I would. Yes. So um, these were interesting. Uh, <laughs> games and uh, play so the association of dolls with girls is probably very very modern and recent um and in fact if you think about it modern you know boys play with dolls too they just call them action figures (laughs) 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 but it's the same thing um and yeah in this society playing with dolls would have been common i think probably to both uh, genders um so going from the fun activities to the you know darker experiences. So what kinds of dangers were children exposed to in this society that we sometimes forget, thankfully so, in in the modern world? Well, nowadays we witness a peaceful time. So we are lucky enough to to live a peaceful life, to enjoy a healthy life. Uh, We are not very worried about food, but children's lives in Byzantium could be very brutal because of famine that are recorded in uh, Byzantine histories uh, because of uh, other natural calamities, harsh winters followed by famine or earthquakes. But if I am to think about dangers uh, children were exposed on a daily basis, I would just point out a basic thing, poor sanitation and poor nutrition. Mm. That often led to uh, infectious diseases that can be fatal for children. 
medical assistance nowadays in situation when a child is injured makes the experience of pain and healing not so traumatic as it would have been in Byzantium. And another thing with, with uh, which children uh, and their families had to cope with was a constant fear of invasion, which forced them to move from one place to another to search for safer uh, environments. They had to abandon their houses and move and start a new life. Yeah. And there were, in the 9th and 10th centuries, uh, frequent Arab raids uh, in Byzantine territories, which resulted in population being taken captive, uh, adults and children alike. And these children could be sold as servants and slaves. So it was really a traumatic experience for, for those children. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done a separate episode on raiding uh, with uh, uh, Alexander Sarandis, uh, so our audience can listen to that one. Yeah, that was a particularly uh, uh, sort of brutal reality of life. So moving from the realities of life to the ideals, so what were the characteristics, sort of physical and moral, of an ideal child in Byzantium? And presumably these are just, uh, differentiated by gender. An ideal child, well, at least at least in a geographer's opinion, would be first and foremost a well-behaved child. Uh, a child who would display modesty, uh, who would be uh, obedient, a certain intellectual capacities, and, and then a child who uh, is inclined to a sustain a religious life. These authors were very much concerned with character description, not so much with providing details about uh, how children looked like uh, from a physical point of view. They valued spirituality over physicality. They embraced the idea that a beautiful body mirrors the, the beauty of the soul. So they do not provide, as in other sources, as in history, for instance, uh, descriptions of how children look like, uh, what kind of bodily features uh, are relevant. But they point out the inner virtues uh, that a child should have. What is interesting is, is this tendency to uh, contrast the character traits of the saints as children with ordinary children who are uh, basically <laughs> common children who are mischievous, uh, undisciplined. But this is not the case for, for girls. I didn't find any girl behaving uh, Badly, or no. you know, being yeah. Well, perhaps I don't know. Maybe one girl who threw a, a stone. Yeah, she injured another another child. But that yeah, that's maybe the the only <laughs> the only example. But throwing stones was uh, probably a regular pastime. I mean, it still was when I was growing up in Greece. Like throwing rocks at each other was like that yes. was fun. Right. <laughs> yes, and they did that. The texts record groups of children playing with pebbles, throwing stones in the water and uh, things like that. So they enjoyed just running around and wandering around and playing with whatever uh, they, they had at hand. I mean, it didn't require really a, a specific toy to enjoy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, so this emphasis on the spiritual qualities of children, it, it it's almost as if like the, the, the virtues appropriate for an adult world have kind of blended into how they see children. 
it's not like they have a distinctive set of like a, a distinctive understanding about like child development and what's appropriate for a child yeah. sort of emotionally and so on at each stage. It's just like this child is good because he's behaving yeah. in a way which indicates that he or she will become a good adult. Yes. Yes. Well, um, at least in hagiographies, that's, right. that's the case. But Salos, uh, for instance, he was very much aware of, you know, the characteristic of each stage. Mm. Uh, uh, infancy was for playfulness, infancy and childhood for playfulness. And, and then uh, the next period would be when, you know, the teenager... Uh, doesn't know what life is and starts to behave uh, naughty or not yeah, in, a, yeah. in the best way for adults. But they recognized, nevertheless, that children were fragile creatures. They, they, they were in need of protection and their character can be molded by adults. So uh, there was this recognition of children, innocence in a way, and purity. So speaking of rowdy children, I so there's a grim joke in Greece. I don't know if you have this in Romania, which is like when children are misbehaving, you kind of say, ah, we need Herod to come by. <laughs> yeah. yes. Herod the Great, yes. right? So the massacre yes. of the innocents is a kind of joke. And, you know, the, the striking thing is I, I found this in Byzantium, too. And okay. yes, it's this, I never <laughs> thought I would. It's hilarious. And it's the Emperor Alexius Komnenos. Okay. Yeah. And so he is being pestered by these monks on Mount Athos because these communities of pastoral, like Vlachs and so on, have entered into the territories of the monastery and they're bringing women and children, which the monks think is like, you know, we don't want yeah, any, yeah. you know. Um, and so they're pestering the emperor to do something about these communities and get rid of these children because they're, <laughs> and at one point, Alexis says, who do they think I am, Herod, to save them from the children? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, all right. At the end of the book, you have these fictional micro histories, you call them, uh, where you kind of reconstruct what we might call sort of archetypal or... Uh, kind of templates for the life course of a of a child, um, obviously those that survived, um, you know, birth and infancy. So, what are you trying to accomplish with those? Um, I mean, it's an interesting approach. What are the advantages and potential pitfalls of of creating these kind of imaginary um, children's biographies? Well, what I have tried to do was mostly to to provide the reader a more kind of direct access to the experiences of children. This need to construct these stories came out uh, of a need to zoom in on the lives of, of individuals and on, on the myriad of factors that shape each life, mm. which we don't really get to just by using available evidence outside of a very limited uh, group of high-profile individuals such as saints or emperors or princes. Or, and even in this, in, in this case, how much out of the sources giving some glimpses into their lives is really true to life rather than formulaic and purely fiction. So yeah. I thought that when employing more traditional approaches, we tend to have a general picture, but once we kind of delve into and zoom in into the 
very little aspects. Uh, we bring a personal touch to these millions of voices of, of children, and we need to see other uh, details that can escape uh, our attention. So that was my idea. I was thinking, how did children really, what kind of routines they had from the time when they get up from, uh, from bed until they went to sleep again? Right. What were their activities? How they interact with, with the environment? With whom they, they could interact? Because it was a matter of gender, of status. For instance, there were limitations coming not just from their physicality, because, but also the height, their height could be a factor in how and where would they go to, how would they see, I don't know, a building or an inscription in, on mm. a building in their streets, uh, things like that. So um, I just wanted to point this out and to gather the evidence, because I must say that Everything is pieced together from actual evidence from the Byzantine yes, uh, yes. sources down mm. to the last detail. But of course, yes, one of the pitfalls and the obvious pitfall maybe is just allowing imagination to, um, to go too far. Yeah. But in a way, somehow, allowing imagination in our history writing, why not seem as problematic uh, when we have done uh, this on basic, uh, on, on solid evidence. And I wonder whether we use fiction somehow, or, or not fiction, but imagination when we just do more traditional history writing. Isn't just, we are not constructing stories, even when employing traditional approaches. Um, that's a question that I, I keep asking myself. You should. And, and I think you did the right thing here. And I'm reminded of a historian of the Hellenistic period, uh, Peter Green. I met a very long time ago. He would spend his summers on Lesbos. And somehow or other, we, we had this wonderful night where we were chatting. Actually, for a long time, I was telling him that I was working on a Byzantine historian. Well, I, I told him I was working on a historian, Psellus. Mm. And he was an ancient historian, and he thought I meant Sallust, the, oh, the, the ancient Roman historian. And we had about a 10-minute conversation <laughs> about two completely different people, but we <laughs> thought we were talking about the same one. And at some point, we looked at each other, and it was we realized, no, we were not talking about the same person, Sallust and Sallust. So anyway, and he told me during that conversation that he thought it was a requirement that ancient historians should at some point write some fictional or imaginative, you know, reconstruction, as you've done, in order to force themselves to think about what life was like for these people. Because, and, and he wrote a series of novels, by the way, he wrote a novel on Sappho and Alcibiades and Sulla and so forth. And even though he was, yeah, he was a professional historian, like scholar, footnotes and all of that, because he wanted to force himself to try to do exactly that. Because when you're working with like fragments of information, as you are in your book, like a fragment here and a fragment there and a bit there and a bit, you can, first of all, you can get lost in the whole variety and the, how the information is all scattered. But also you can also be very 
defensive and like, well, this is what the sources say, and I'm not going to offer you, the reader, anything more than what I find in the sources because it's defensive. Yeah. You don't want to be criticized for, yeah. you know, taking your imagination too far. But I think it's, a, it's great when historians do this in a self-conscious way. I mean, you're not tricking anyone that you found these in a manuscript. Uh, you're <laughs> telling us what you're doing uh, to give us, a, in the end, what, what does it look like to you? So I'm really glad you put those in. Thank you. And I want to add uh, the fact that when doing this kind of exercise, you are just aware of how many factors you need to take into account. Mm. Because, I mean, even in constructing, you know, uh, when, when I thought, okay, what kind of lives I want to write about, what, where children live. So I chose to portray children's everyday life in two uh, different settings. But it was really a very interesting exercise for me to take into consideration everything because in a monastic setting, life was very different mm -hmm. and the, the routines were very different. Also, in a monastic community, it depends whether it's a small community or a big community. It depends the geography. And I mean, all, yeah. all these this, uh, factors need, need to be uh, taken into consideration. And probably we are not really aware when doing traditional. <laughs> I hear you. I mean, you're saying that in order to write those micro histories, you had to make fundamental choices that would also be reflective of the experience of a large number of people. Uh, mm -hmm. And those choices are difficult to make. So kudos. Anyway, it was, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to give you the chance to say something about your current project, because you mentioned it earlier to me when we were speaking before, and I think that many in the audience would like to hear it, like yeah. what you're working on, because we all want to hear it. So what are you working on now? <laughs> well, now I'm working on hope, uh, <laughs> uh, which, which is, a, is a theme it is a resulted from from childhood studies uh, from childhood research when i looked at so many examples of families that had to cope with these tragedies of losing their children and having to move on i wondered okay how they move on, moved on what helped them so then i thought okay i think it's hope that made them whether it's Christian hope or, uh, or, or other kind of hope, hope in a better future. And hope, I think, uh, drives people to plan their future and to, uh, to build different strategies to achieve a goal. So this is what I want to do now in, in my research, to look at different life strategies via hope. Yes. Uh, that is taken is 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 seen as a kind of a emotional uh, emotional practice. Uh, yeah, no, that sounds fascinating, <laughs> and we can all use it. Uh, we can use more of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's a great place to end this. Uh, uh, so thank you, Anna, for your research and for agreeing to speak with us. It, it was a pleasure thank to meet you. you. We never met before, but I hope that uh, on the next suitable occasion, uh, yes. we can meet in person. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really enjoyable. <laughs> Take care. You too.